Well, we're glad to see you this morning. Thankful to have you in the service. And I invite you to take your Bible if you have it with you. If you don't, you can just listen on and I'll be reading scriptures to you here in a few minutes. And we're turning to the book of 1 John all the way toward the back of your Bible uh, to chapter 1. And we're going to read uh, several verses there in just a few moments. So whether you're finding it in an electronic Bible or you have a printed Bible, I invite you to find your place there. I'll begin reading in chapter 1, verse 5, and I'm going to read through verse 10. Our focus will be on verses 8, 9, and 10, but I want you to see the context in which those verses are found. And so we'll begin reading in verse 5 of 1 John chapter 1. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. I want to answer a question today that maybe sometimes you have wondered about. Certainly, I hope that you'll think about the question and you'll consider the significance and the importance of the question. That is, what happens when Christians sin? I want to be careful to say that I'm speaking today primarily to those of you who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus, those of you who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. It's our desire that that, uh, you understand the answer to this question, but maybe you've come and you don't know Jesus Christ and you don't know what it is to have the forgiveness of sins and you don't know what it is to be the possessor of eternal life. While I'm not be speaking directly to you specifically, I want to say to you that God loves you. And the sins that you commit are just as significant that they be considered. Because the reality is that you'll have to pay the penalty of those sins, but you don't have to. Jesus has paid the penalty for you. And all you have to do is be willing to come to Jesus and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And your sins are taken away from you. The penalty of your sins is removed from you. And so if you don't know Christ as your Savior, my encouragement to you before you leave today to open your heart and say, Jesus, save me. But I want to speak primarily to those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. And I want to challenge you to think about this question with me. What happens when Christians sin? I was sitting at a dinner table here a few weeks back with a colleague of mine, another man in the ministry who is 20 to 25 years older than I am. So he's been in the ministry a lot longer than I have been. I've been in the ministry 40 years. He's been in the ministry 60 plus years. And we were talking about the church and we were talking about the state of the church. I'm not talking about our church alone, just the church in general, all the various churches that are represented by that word, the church. We were talking about the state of the church. And in the course of that discussion about what's going on in our churches and you know, where are we doing things right and where are we missing the boat, uh, he asked a question, and here was the question. He said, when is the last time you saw people 
who were broken over their sins. When you saw people weeping over their sins, when you saw people crying about their sins because of the brokenness that they felt in their hearts because they had sinned against their God. And when I heard that question, I didn't answer it. I actually, I turned it into a personal question and I asked myself the question, when is the last time you were personally, David, broken over your sins? When is the last time that you were so grieved over your sins that you wept tears because you knew you had grieved the one who had saved you from the penalty of your sins? When is the last time that you felt that sense of sadness and that sense of grief? Maybe I should ask that question of all of us today. When is the last time that you wept over your own sins? When is the last time that you felt so broken because of your sins that you couldn't help but cry tears because you knew you had disappointed your Father, your Heavenly Father? You see what I'm talking about? I can remember times in the ministry when we would have services in churches and people literally during the course of the sermon being delivered would fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and they would begin to weep while they were sitting in the pews because they knew that they were sinning against God and they couldn't hardly wait for the invitation time to come to be able to make it to the front and talk to somebody about how they could have the forgiveness of their sins, which I'm going to explain to you here in a few moments how they could have the forgiveness of their sins. I can remember in churches where we used to have what was called a mourner's bench. And you had an invitation time and people, Christian people, people who professed to be followers of Jesus, but who, knowing the conviction of the Spirit of God in their hearts and knowing that they had not been living as would please their Father, would come and on that mourner's bench they would kneel and they would spend time there calling out to God and confessing their sins, not necessarily out loud, but confessing their sins to God. And there would be people who would linger at that mourner's bench confessing those sins. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you've seen such a thing as that? What's happened to the conviction of the Holy Spirit? What's happened to us being broken over our waywardness and our fallenness? What's causing us to no longer weep tears when we know we have grieved the Father, our Father that has saved us from the penalty of our sins? What has happened to us that it no longer seems to bother us? We live in a society and in an age when we, we, we redefine things. Uh, abortion or the murder of the unborn is now called pro-choice. Homosexuality is now called a lifestyle. And on and on you can go with the different words that are used, trying to diminish the significance of these sins against God. We make excuses for our own sins. We try to cover them over. We try to hide from them. We say, well, I couldn't help myself, or that's my personality, or, you know, it was their fault anyway. They had more to blame than I have to blame in, in the whole matter. And, and we look for ways to shift that responsibility off of ourselves. And by redefining and by shifting responsibility and by covering up in our own hearts and our own lives, we, in some fashion, bring comfort to our own hearts, but we don't deal with our sin. 
and we become a little more calloused about it, a little more indifferent toward it. We stop realizing that it's our sins that Jesus paid the penalty for. He had to die for on the cross of Calvary. They don't seem as important or significant to us because we just sort of push them into the background and try to pay no attention to them. But do you know, to God, even as his children, to God, our sins hurt him. Our sins grieve him. And our sins should hurt us. And our sins should grieve us. And rather than hide them or redefine them or diminish them or cover them, it should bring us to a place where we desire to be right with him and we confess our sins. You see, when it comes to sin and the redefinition of sin and the renaming of sin, by the way, sin by any other name is still sin no matter what you call it. Man calls it an accident. God calls it an abomination. Man calls it a blunder. God calls it blindness. Man calls it a chance. God calls it a choice. Man calls it an error. God calls it enmity. Man calls it an infirmity. God calls it iniquity. Man calls it liberty. God calls it lawlessness. Man calls it a trifle. God calls it a tragedy. Man calls it a weakness. God calls it willfulness. In other words, when we stop and we evaluate our lives, as we should do, according to the light of the Word of God, the result should be that we see the sinfulness of our hearts and it brings the brokenness to our hearts so that we would cry out to God for His forgiveness and for His cleansing. Now, I've got good news for you. If you're a child of God, if you're a Christian today, there's a place in your life when you trusted Christ as your Savior, you received Him as your Savior. That can never be changed. You are forever His child. And even if you grieve his heart and break his heart with the sinful ways of your life, the result will be that God will still love you and he will never turn you out of his family. You can never be separated from the love of God. Never separated from the love of God. But just because you can't be separated from his love doesn't mean that you can't grieve God and lose fellowship with God. You may still have a relationship with God that is settled and secure forever, but the fellowship that you have with God will be broken. And you know what I'm talking about when we're talking about broken fellowship. You've had situations when you were growing up and you knew you did something that your parents told you not to do, and then you came home or you were already at home and you did everything you could to avoid any conversation that might possibly lead to the exposure of what you did. And you didn't want to really sit at the table very long and talk to your parents. You didn't really want to sit in the living room very long and talk to your parents. You didn't want to be around where there could be conversation that might possibly lead to what you knew they had told you not to do. And a distance existed. Even though physically you were in the same house, a distance existed between you and your parents and maybe between your parents and you because you knew that you knew that you were guilty and you were hoping not to be found out. You can't lose your relationship to God by our sins, but we can lose our fellowship with God where it seems that he's distant to us because we have done that which we know grieves his heart. Now, God doesn't want us to live that way. He's going to provide for us here in this message the remedy to take care of this, and I'm glad to be able to tell you that. But we first have got to settle on the fact that our sins aren't just a oops, as one pop singer says, oops, I did it again. 
It's not just an, a mistake. It's, it's not something to be excused. It's not something to be covered over. It's something to be acknowledged as being exactly what God says it is. We don't redefine it. We don't rename it. We acknowledge it for what it is. It is sin against God. And we as his children, when we sin against God, never want to become so calloused and indifferent and cold-hearted that it doesn't bother us when our fellowship with God is broken. Never. We never want to be in that situation. Just to drive home the reality of what sin is to God. I was doing some studying in this passage of Scripture, and I came to understand that there are in the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, there are 33 different words for sin. 33. Those 33 words are compound words, and they come from 10 root words. In other words, these 10 root words have a compound added to them that gives them a little different nuance. There are 33 total words, compound words, but they come from the 10 basic root words that are translated by different words in our Bible, like iniquity or transgression or wickedness and so forth. They come from these same 10 words. Just to get an idea of these 10 words that give us the 33, one of them means missing the mark. We come short of the glory of God. Another means breaking of the moral law or turning from the perfect will of God. Another means falling away as from the truth. One of them means failing to listen to God, resulting in disobedience. Another means being unjust or unrighteous or void of God's approval. Still another says it means it's rebellion, defiance of God and His judgment. Another is defined as lawless or contrary to the law. Another is utter corruption, depravity, and iniquity, and I could go on. Those are just the definitions of some of the 10 root words that give us the 33 words in the New Testament that are defined in some fashion as the word sin. Do you see anything pretty about any of those definitions? No. Because what we excuse and we cover over and we make light of and we laugh at and we hide away. God doesn't see sin like you and I see sin. And until we see it like God sees it, we will never be broken over it. We will never weep tears about our own sinfulness. You want to know how grievous sin is to God? The place you have to go is to Calvary. And you watch Jesus being taken outside the city of Jerusalem. And you listen as those soldiers, those Roman soldiers, nail his hands and his feet to that cross. And you watch as he's lifted up onto that cross. Every socket of his body is out of joint. He is swollen almost beyond recognition. It's likely that they pulled his beard by its roots from his face as he was walking down the Via Dolorosa. They hit him with the reeds as he was going that direction. And while Jesus is hanging on that cross suspended between heaven and earth, God takes your sin and mine, the penalty of your sins and mine, and places it on his own son. And God, on his own son, executes his righteous justice against mankind's sinfulness on his own son. And you listen to Jesus when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
A little later, he says, it's finished, meaning it's paid in full. Tetelestai is the Greek word. It's paid in full. And then he gives up his spirit and he dies. You want to know how bad sin is? It's not something you write in a book somewhere and you make light of or you make a little video about or you say, oops, I did it again. It's something that Jesus Christ had to pay the penalty for on the cross. And yet today in our churches, we rarely hear discussions about sin. Christians rarely hear sermons about sin. We've reached a place in modern American Christianity where we're more interested in what's called a moralistic therapeutic deism. A moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic, I'm going to give you a list of do's and don'ts. Therapeutic, it's going to be therapeutic. We're going to give you five steps to be happy, six steps to a better marriage, four steps to a better job. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. You don't need the revelation of God. You can work it out in your own head. In other words, it's it's an approach to God where, you know, I don't really need God. (laughs) Just give me some rules to live by. Give me some, you know, some therapeutic points that will help me have a better life, have, a, have my best life now, and, and I'll reason it out and I'll work it out in my own head. And we don't stop and realize that that kind of preaching is deadly. That kind of teaching is deadly. Because the reality, the one problem that every one of us has is the sin problem. And until you understand that, until you understand the significance of what sin is to God and how he had to punish it on his own son on the cross of Calvary on Golgotha, until you understand how God looks at sin and we begin to look at it like God looks at it, we will never be broken over it and therefore we will never forsake it. We will go on excusing it. We will continue to live out of fellowship with God. We will live at a distance. We may be in a relationship with him. The penalty of sin has been removed, but the practical application of it, every day we're living out of fellowship with God because we're doing things that we know that if we were found out, and God already knows. So if you're sitting here smug thinking, well, he doesn't know, he doesn't know. God already knows. Thinking if God doesn't find out, then maybe, just maybe, I can get through this life. And we steal from ourselves the very things that God wants us to enjoy. And that can only come when we deal with our sins the way Jesus says to deal with them. For instance, when Christians sin, fellowship is hindered. We're going to talk about that in a few moments, but that's what we just read about. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. 1 John is not written to unbelievers. It's written to believers. And it's written for the purpose of how they can have fellowship with God. But he says, if you say that you walk in the light, if, if you say that you walk in the light, but you walk in darkness, you lie. You can't have, them, you can't have it both ways. You're either acknowledging that I'm walking in the light, and whatever God exposes, I'm confessing it and making it right. But if you're living in the darkness, and you're ignoring your sin, and not dealing with your sin, and not confessing your sin, then you can't say that you're walking in the light. You're lying. You're lying to other people. You're lying to yourself. You're lying about God. We'll see that in a few moments. Why? Because when we live in sin, and we're not broken over it in our own hearts and our own lives, the result is that, well, 
the fellowship that we ought to have with God is broken. You remember in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve had partaken of the forbidden fruit and God came walking in the cool of the evening to have fellowship with them? Remember that? And what were Adam and Eve doing? They were hiding. And that's where a lot of people live. They're hiding. They're hiding. If God just doesn't ask those questions, if God just doesn't confront me with these matters, if you'll just give me some moralistic therapeutic deism, just give me a few points of right and wrong, give me some, some points of how to feel good about myself, and I'll work it out in my own head if I don't have to deal with my sin. And when you don't deal with it, you live out of fellowship with God, and you miss so much of what God wants to do in you. And God wants to do through you. What happens when Christian sin, fellowship is hindered? But secondly, God is grieved. Did you know that God can be grieved? We talk about God, and sometimes we forget that He has a personality and that He has emotions, and one of those is the ability to be grieved. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You know the day that you trusted Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit took up residence. You are now the temple of God. He lives within you. And do you realize the presence of God in your life can be grieved by the sins that you commit? When I was 14, 15 years of age, I got caught doing something by my dad. I got caught smoking. I was hanging out with a group of boys and that group of boys, I guess we thought we were cool and we were going to look tough and we were going to look bigger than everybody else if we smoked. I, I don't look back on that now and I don't understand. You know, you're just thinking like a kid. You're not thinking with any kind of sense of reason, right? Right? <laughs> Make sure you're with me here. You're not thinking with any sense of reason. But I didn't smoke for very long because my dad caught me. I'll never forget that day. See, my dad was in World War II. He was a sergeant uh, in the Army Air Corps in World War II. And he had picked up smoking in the military. And when he'd gotten out of the military, he and my mother and started having a family. There was some point in time when he said he knew that it wasn't right to continue smoking. It wasn't a good testimony for his life. He wanted to be a leader in his church. And this wasn't something that he was proud of doing. And he, he said, he'd say it this way. He said, I, I laid that pack of cigarettes down and I never picked them up again. I've heard him tell it many times. He's in heaven today, but I've heard him tell it many times. But he walked on, in on me on that day. He had told me, David, you don't want to mess with that. You want to stay away from that. It's addictive. It'll draw you in. It won't, it won't, it won't ever let go of you. It can damage your body. He talked a bit about me all about all those kind of things. But here I was secretly in the garage of the house, a detached garage of the house, smoking a cigarette. And he walked in and he caught me. It wasn't what he said to me that broke my heart. It was how he looked. What was on his face that broke my heart. There was one thing that he did say to me. And you'll find this sort of comical, those of you that know anything about my past. He said, David, if you'll never smoke again, I won't tell your mother. Now, if you don't know, I lived in a home with law and grace. My dad was grace. My mother was the law. If my mother found out, I was going down. I didn't want my mother to find out. I wanted grace 
to deal with me, not the law. And I never touched them ever again. But it wasn't so much because my daddy had told me all those things. It was because when I saw his face, do you realize that when we sin against God, we make excuses for our sins. We cover them up. We act as if it's no big deal. We blame them on somebody else or whatever approach we may give to it. We redefine them. We rename them. Whatever we may do, do we realize that we grieve the very heart of God? We ought to look at His face. He loves us, but He's broken because we've sinned against Him. What happens when Christians sin? Not only is their fellowship hindered and God is grieved, but power is diminished. The power of God is diminished. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19, he says, Do not quench the Spirit. The word quenched means exactly what you're thinking. If there's a fire that's roaring, and you're backed up to that fire to try to stay warm in the cold weather, and somebody comes along and throws cold water on it, what does it do? It quenches the power and the effectiveness of that fire. It no longer puts out the same kind of heat, at least for a period of time. It no longer puts out the same kind of heat that it was putting out before. Why? It's been quenched. You realize that when we sin against God, not only is our fellowship hindered and God grieved, but the power of God that he wants to give to us to live our lives so that we can please him, it's, it's diminished. There's a fourth thing, and that is that joy is lost when we cover our sins and try to hide our sins rather than do with them as we're about to learn that God says we should do. Joy is lost. You know, when you've done something you know that's displeased your father, you may come to a place where you're so callous that you can just sort of slough it off and pay no attention to it, but I'll tell you something else that's missing, and that's the deep down joy that you used to have. You remember when you used to talk about Jesus Remember when you used to talk about his word? Remember when you used to love to come to church? Remember when it wasn't, I'm going to endure to the end of the sermon, but you didn't want the sermon to come to an end? You remember when you'd come to church and you sang and you thought, wow, you know, I'm singing to God and he's hearing my voice. Remember when there was joy in getting together with other believers, there was a sense of joy about it. But that's been lost. And it may well be because you've That's some sin that you're harboring, some unconfessed, undealt with sin. You've covered it up. You've explained it away. You've said it's really not my fault. It was somebody else's fault. You've renamed it or you've redefined it as being something other than sin. And rather than say what it is according to what God says it is, you just refuse to own it. And because you refuse to own it, God is like he's at a distance. You've grieved his heart. His power to live in you and through you is diminished. And in the process... Your joy is gone. Have you read the story of David in the Old Testament? David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He then tried to have her husband, and did have her husband killed, put him on the front lines of a battle so that he would die in that battle. And for the next year, for the next year, David covered up his sin. Read about it. Matthew, Matthew uh, excuse me, Psalm 51. Read about it. For the next year. He covered it up. He said he was miserable. He was miserable about his sin. And listen to what he said, Psalm 51, verse 12. Restore to me. When he began to confess it, by the way, remember when he confessed it? What what is it that exposes the sin in our lives? It doesn't have to be me. It doesn't have to be your wife or your husband or your children or your parents. Do you know what it is? It's the truth of the Scripture. 
That's what exposes. That's the light. When the light exposes that sin, you know you're doing what you're not supposed to be doing, what you've been taught according to the Scripture God says would displease Him, and yet you're doing it anyway. And there's a real sense of sadness about you. The joy is gone. Listen to what David prayed in Psalm 51, verse 12. He said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. You can't live in unconfessed sin and have joy. It's, it's, it's not possible. You can't live out of fellowship with God and be joyous. And then fifthly, what happens when Christians sin? Conviction is experienced. Conviction is experienced. James chapter 4 verse 17 says to him that knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. If you know what's right to do, it doesn't matter how you feel about it, to you it's sin and conviction sets in. Now you can, you can push that conviction aside, you can try to ignore it, you can become calloused to it if you allow it to go on and don't deal with it till you think that it doesn't exist anymore, and then you come to a church service like this, and suddenly the light is shining on you. It's like you're sitting in one of those dark rooms, and there's an officer who's got this big bright light, and he's shining on you, and the, and the questions are coming at you, and you're having a hard time answering the questions, because you know you're guilty. You know you're guilty. And there is no joy in that room, and you feel the depth of the guilt, because you know it's not right. You know living this way is not right. You know you're not honoring God. You know He's not pleased with your life. You may be His child. You have a relationship with Him, but your fellowship with Him is broken. The power of God in your life has been diminished. The joy has gone out of your life. God is grieved with the way that you're living your life. Your fellowship isn't where He wants it to be. And there's this cloud of guilt that hangs over you. When's the last time that you read the scripture and you felt God stabbing you in the heart? Say, I'm talking to you. I'm pointing out something in you. When's the last time you came to a church service and didn't get mad at the preacher because he preached something out of the Bible that exposed the light, exposed your sin, and rather than get mad at the preacher, you got right with God? And we can go on. We can talk about a number of things. Chastisement comes when we disobey God, when we live out of fellowship with God. And you, you end up hurting other people in the process. Fathers who live in sin, mothers who live in sin, not only take themselves down, they take down their children in the process. Sometimes grandchildren in the process. If it's not children, it's people around you. You take them down with you. There's so many other things. But listen, when Christians sin... It's not insignificant. It's not unimportant. It's not something you just push aside and slough off as if it doesn't matter anymore. The reality is it matters a lot. And it's hurting you and it's hurting God. And He wants you to deal with it. He wants you to deal with it. As a matter of fact, can I just tell you something? There's seven things that Jesus does with our sins. You might want to know this. If you're writing things down, you might want to know this. Seven things that Jesus does with our sins, he condemns them. In Romans chapter 8, verse 3, he says he condemns sin in the flesh, which in essence means that sin, you're going to, you're going to die. One day God's going to do away with sin altogether. He carries it. According to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross. He cancels it. 
Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. He's talking about the handwriting of ordinances, the law of the Old Testament that made us all debtors in sin. You know what he does? He cancels that debt. He opens a new account and he deposits the righteousness of Jesus into that account. And it's never exhausted. I don't know about your bank account. Mine gets exhausted sometimes. But not that account. Not the account where Jesus' righteousness has been placed. What else does he do? He crucifies it. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for, for sins, the just for the unjust. He casts it away. Micah chapter 7, verse 19. It says, you shall cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He chooses to forget it. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, and, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. That's good news. Do you realize that when you stand before God, he's not going to bring up the penalty of your sin? God can never forget anything, by the way. He's omniscient. When it means that God forgets something, it means that he, he has committed that he will never bring it up against you again. And the penalty of your sins has been cast away. And he's chosen to forget it. But now listen, the seventh thing, he cleanses it away. That's what Jesus does. He cleanses it away. And that's what 1 John 1, 9 is about. It's about God cleansing away our sin. Now look back to 1 John. I want to bring this to a close. Look back to 1 John. And I want you to listen to what he says again. Because there's, there's, there's three lies that are going on here. One is the lie that we tell to others. One is the lie that we tell to ourselves, and one is the lie that we tell about God. And verse 6 is the lie that we tell to others. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie. If we say that we're right with God and have fellowship with God, but we're living off in the darkness, which is a symbol of sin, and that which displeases God... You can say it all you want. It's a lie. Do, do you realize a lot of people come to church on Sundays to salve their conscience? Make them feel a little bit better. Not dealing with their sins. Not making things right with God. They just come in order to feel a little bit better about themselves. But listen, you can tell everybody in the world, you can dress up and you can make up and look good to everybody in the world. But if you're walking in darkness and you say you're in fellowship, you lie to others. Not only is it a problem lying to others, it's a problem of lying to yourself. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, that's the person who says, I could never do that. I could never do that. You can't blame me for that. I could never do that. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We lie to ourselves. Hey, there's nobody in this room who's perfect. Aren't you glad of that? Because if there were, we would all feel even worse than we presently feel. You mean there is somebody perfect? Will you please stand up? If you're perfect in the room, you have never sinned in action, in attitude, uh, in association. You never sinned in thought or deed. I, I invite you to stand. By the way, I'm sitting inside. I invite you to stand. Any perfect people here? I could never do that. Oh, yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can. And anybody who denies that reality 
is not only lying to others, but they're lying to themselves because within you can be the most horrendous things if you allow them. And then there's the lie that we tell about God. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. We lie about our actions. We say, oh, that's not really a sin. Well, God said it was. Well, you know, that's no big deal. Yeah. Now you've lied to God. You've turned God into a liar. Do you see what he's saying here? You want to walk in fellowship with me? Don't lie to others and don't lie to yourself and don't lie about God. You want to walk in fellowship with me? You, you want to know what it is to have my pleasure in your life, my peace? You want to have the joy of the Lord in your life? You want to have the conviction removed, the guilt taken away? You, you want to have that in your life? Stop lying to others. Stop covering it up saying, well, I'm, I'm really okay with God when you know you're not. Or I could never do that when you know you could. Or God doesn't really mean what he says anyway. Stop lying and just get real and say, God, what you say is right. Boy, it's quiet in this room, isn't it? I can remember a day when this kind of preaching could be found in every church. But we've gone to a moralistic, therapeutic deism. Give me a list of rules to obey. Give me some good things to feel about myself and I'll reason the rest of it out. Don't, don't give me the truth of Scripture because the truth is the light. That's why you need to read your Bible every day. The truth is the light. The truth of Scripture is the light. That's why you need to be in church every week because you come and you hear the truth being preached and the light examines your life. That's why you need a life group. Because you open the Bible together with other believers and you study the scripture together and the light begins to shine on your heart. And there is no way to recognize your sinfulness if the light isn't shining. You're living in ignorance. And ignorance is no excuse when God has given us the truth. We lie to others and we lie to ourselves and we lie about God when he says the right response is verse 9. If, it's a big if, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that the glorious good news? Now look, if you today are not a believer in Jesus, you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, you don't know that you have a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, you can confess your sins all day long and you will never get to heaven. The only way for you to have a right relationship with God is for you to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe you died for my sins and rose again and I put my faith in you and you alone. You are my only hope. I have no other hope. I have no other hope but Jesus Christ. It's not the Baptist church or the Methodist church or the Presbyterian church or the Catholic church. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And Jesus, you're my only hope. When I stand in, before God in heaven, I'm not going to say, well, Lord, look, I was a preacher. You're going to let me in, aren't you? I tried to do good things. I tried to raise my family. I tried to be good to my grandkids. Now you're going to let me in, aren't you? No, you know what? I'm going to plead. I'm going to plead Jesus. 
I have no right to heaven except Jesus. Jesus is my only hope of eternity. And friends, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you can confess your sins all day. You can find the priest somewhere and confess them to the priest as long as you want. He can't forgive your sins. You have to come to Jesus. But if you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ and somewhere along the way you've begun to walk away from the things you know were right and you've begin, begun to allow sin to take harbor in your life and you've stopped confessing, you've stopped acknowledging what you know that you know God would not have you to do or God would have you to do, until you come to the place when you confess and you say, God, I agree with you. I 100% totally agree with you. This is sin, and I want you to forgive it. By the way, he doesn't say you have to ask for forgiveness. He says when you acknowledge it as being what God says it is, which means you want his forgiveness, he automatically forgives it. That's what he says. If we confess our sins, he, that's God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You hear what he does? He brings us back into fellowship. The grieving of God is gone. The smile of God is back. His power is returned. Joy comes back to us. Conviction, that guilt that we feel, is removed from us. Why? Because we confess. We said, God, I am guilty. We've we got to stop playing games here. We've got to stop playing games. Christianity is not a game. Following Jesus is not a game. This is real stuff. This is serious business. This is eternal life we're talking about. This isn't a matter of what your bottom profit line is. That isn't important. This doesn't matter on which side of the tracks you live doesn't matter what the color of your skin may be. None of those things are important. God's not a respecter of persons. God doesn't let me into his presence sooner than he lets you into his presence because I'm a preacher. God's not a respecter of persons. And every one of us have got to take our Christianity seriously. So I don't want that kind of Christianity. You don't want joy. You don't want God's power. You don't want fellowship. You don't want peace in your life. You don't want any of those things. You don't want any of those things. Listen, sin beats you up and leaves you for dead. Forgiveness picks you up and restores you to health. Sin sinks you into guilt. Forgiveness showers you with God's grace. Sin puts a frown on your heart. Forgiveness puts a smile in your soul. Sin puts God on the outside. Forgiveness brings him on the inside. Sin will cost you everything and leaves you with a guilty conscience. Forgiveness costs God everything but leaves you with a clean heart. But until we come back to the place where we stop excusing our sins and sloughing them off and pushing them aside and redefining them, renaming them. Well, nobody can tell me what sin is. You have a bigger problem. You have a bigger problem with God. Because if God can't tell you what sin is, then you have a real big problem. You mean you have, you have a huge problem. 
If we confess our sins, acknowledge them, Lord, this is wrong. I shouldn't be living this way. This isn't pleasing to you. This is an attitude I shouldn't have, an action that shouldn't be. This is an association that is not glorifying to you. These are thoughts. These are things I'm viewing with my eyes. These are places I'm going that I know that do not please you, God. I acknowledge these are exactly what you say they are. They are sins against you. God says, I'll forgive you and I'll cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Here's a name that maybe some of you will know if you've lived long enough. It's the name Edwin Cooper. Anybody know that name? Edwin Cooper? He lived in the middle of the 20th century. Edwin Cooper? I guess I'm the only old one here. (laughs) Edwin Cooper became famous as a clown, a circus clown. Don't you love circus clowns? You know, big red nose, all that makeup on their face, the you know, floppy hair and the floppy shoes and the big pants, and sort of like me you know, on Sunday morning. <laughs> he started being a circus clown. His whole family was in the circus. started being a circus clown when he was nine years old. He even spent some time with the Barnum and Bailey Circus. But where he is best known, and why most of you don't know his name, is because in the 1950s, he became a television personality who was called Bozo the Clown. His name was Edwin Cooper. Bozo, so I hear that, all the groaning. Oh, yeah. oh, now I know who we're talking about. You remember the 1950s? You kids have absolutely no idea. We had black and white TV that you had to turn on about five or ten minutes early because the tubes had to warm up if you wanted to be able to watch it. There was no cable and there was no internet. There were rabbit ears. Maybe there was an antenna on top of the house and you got maybe three, at the most, four stations, even in the big city of Atlanta, Georgia. Any of you remember that? Bozo the Clown. In the middle of the 1950s, Bozo the Clown would would close out. Whenever he was on TV, he would always close out by saying to his buddies and partners, that's what he called them, his buddies and partners, every week he would say, get checked for cancer. Buddies and partners, get checked for cancer. Buddies and partners, get checked for cancer. Unfortunately, Edwin Cooper, Bozo the Clown, didn't take his own advice. He didn't get checked for cancer. And at the age of 41, he lost his life to the aggressive disease. Can I just tell you that sin is far more deadly than the most aggressive and fast-growing cancer? It kills, it destroys everything that it touches. And until we regard sin as God regards it, and we stop laughing at it, and we stop thinking that it's humorous, and we start seeing it by the definitions that God gives to it, and we stop allowing it in our lives and stop playing with it and seeing how close to the edge of sinfulness we can get without crossing over into that line until we decide that we're going to follow Jesus so that we can live and love like Jesus, where we're going to live our lives in a way that when God points out something, by the way, that's what it means to walk in the light. It means when the truth exposes something, you agree with it. That's exactly what I see. That's exactly what God says about it. I agree with you, God. It's what it means to walk in the light. When God exposes something in your heart and in your life, rather than pushing it aside, it's no big deal. 
You do what? 1 John 1, 9 said, you confess it to the Lord. Can I just give you something I wasn't going to give you? Psalm 139 is my challenge to you. Are you all with me? I'm, I'm talking about something that every church needs to hear. This is not about me defining sin. This is about what God defines as sin. This is about what God says is sinful. This isn't about me getting, uh, making you feel guilty. This is about God pointing it out. In Psalm 139, you don't need to turn there. Psalm 139 is one of the most beautiful psalms. He begins this psalm in what's called the indicative mood. Listen to how he says it. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. This is what God has done, the indicative. This is what God has done. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You you know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. And he goes on. He goes on and says, Lord, you knew me when I was in my mother's womb. You were fashioning me and making me in my mother's womb. All of those things that God knew about the psalmist. But then he comes down to the last two verses of that Psalm, 139, verses 23 and 24, and it moves from the indicative to the imperative. And he says, God, you know these things about me, but I'm asking you to do this. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You hear what he says? God, you already know all of these things about me, but Lord, I'm asking you, search me. Are you willing to do that, Christian? Are you willing to do that? Search me. Well, Lord, that, I mean, Pastor, that might mean I have to make something right with my neighbor or my friend or another fellow Christian. Yeah, yeah. Paul says we ought to have a conscience that's void of offense toward God and toward man. We love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. Yeah. It may mean that you have to get right with somebody else. But you will never know joy, and you will never know peace, and you will never know fellowship, and you will never know the closeness of God, and you will never know what it is to have the power of God at work in your life until you decide... This is, this, is, this is serious. This is real. This isn't playing a part. This is walking in the light with Jesus Christ.